All right, good morning, church. Thank you for uh, being with us today as uh, we're going to keep going in our Galatians series. Um, I will say, I know that uh, Alex pretty much met our quota on uh, beard jokes last Sunday, but I've always been just, and it's a bias that I need to repent of, a little skeptical of beardless preaching, but listening to Alex bring the word so faithfully last weekend gave me the confidence I needed to trim it up a little this week and uh, not be fearful of that. So I uh, really am uh, seriously appreciative of Alex and uh, thankful for him uh, stepping in and, and doing that and doing that so faithfully. So we're going to seek uh, this week uh, to continue. Uh, and what we're going to be going a little bit backwards, the, uh, the snowpocalypse that we may have jumped the gun on, um, put us out of schedule just a little bit. So Alex actually preached on the um, text that proceeds where we're going to be today. So uh, last week, he uh, Alex talked about what it is to be children of faith. And Alex, the text he preached on there at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, really brought home the idea that our, our faith is revealed in our hope, and that ultimately what our hope is in is revealed in the way that we live out our faith. And so uh, one of the texts that Alex preached last week said, Are you so foolish that you began by the Spirit, but are now being perfected in the flesh? And so last week, following the incident, uh, writing about the incident we're going to preach on today, Paul reminds the church, like, do you remember where you came from? from? Were you rescued by your own efforts? And obviously the people knew that they had been rescued by the transforming power of the gospel through Christ. And so he reminds them like, were you saved by Christ, but now you're growing because of your own works? And, and obviously that's not the case. And uh, this week we're going to, again, we're going to talk about the verse that kind of set that up. So we're going to be in Galatians chapter two, looking at verses 11 through 14. So I am uh, going to read that. And I'm gonna read a, I'm gonna read 11 through 14. Yes, and then uh, we will walk through it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Father, thank you uh, for the precious gift that is your word. Lord, in our, our hands, on our, our nightstands, Lord, we um, hold the answer to uh, all of the questions that we need answers to. Lord, I pray that we would rightly steward such a gift. Um, Lord, I pray that for myself this morning. I, I pray that you might hide me behind your cross and that uh, through the power of your word, you might uh, change us and make us more like you. Um, Lord, I, I know and uh, fully acknowledge that only you can do that. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that uh, you do that here in our midst today for uh, your glory and our good. And I pray these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. So here in this text today, we see this fairly um, awkward, intense encounter. And uh, I want to uh, basically just walk through 
what we just read. Kind of those few short verses have a lot going on there, and so um, I've kind of broken that down into, into scenes, and I just, I just want to walk through what we just witnessed uh, take place in this text here in Galatians. So it says that Cephas, and Cephas means rock. This is a, essentially, you might call it Peter's nickname, okay, that Dwayne Johnson might be cool, but Peter was the rock way before, like that was his name, way before uh, WWE came around. And so uh, Peter, he's uh, Paul is talking about Peter and the term that he uses to refer to him. And he says, Cephas, uh, we see Cephas comes to Antioch and he begins to eat with the Christian Gentiles. And so we don't know what all transpired or exactly why he came to Antioch, but Peter kind of leaves uh, where he's ministering and he comes here to Antioch where the church is a lot different than in Jerusalem. It's primarily primarily Gentile believers, and Peter lets his, his hair down a little bit. Peter all of a sudden begins to rest in the grace that he, he knows full well, but that hasn't necessarily been in his midst very much. This event, if you remember, it's been a while ago now between Shalom Sunday uh, and snow, but the last time I preached, we talked about the beginning of Galatians 2, where um, Paul goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles because he wants to make sure they're all on the same page, that there was beginning to be this murmur in the church that the, the Jews were trying to explain to the Gentiles that you, you still have to keep Jewish rituals, circumcision, eating kosher meals, all of these things to have right standing before Jesus. And so some of these new believers were kind of confused by that. Paul puts a stop to that, and then Paul goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles to make sure, like, hey, we're all on the same page, right? And so he goes and he confirms that. The apostles welcome him and they all acknowledge that the gospel is Christ and Christ, salvation through Christ and Christ alone. So they had just discussed this matter because of the order of events. Some people and some uh, commentators over the years have assumed that Paul is sharing these encounters out of order, that surely after having just had that conversation, Peter wouldn't then take part in this sin. And so they think that Paul's sharing stories not necessarily in order. I totally disagree with that. I think that's putting way too much, uh, that's giving Peter way too much credit. Peter is an apostle of the Lord, but he is, he is not Christ and he is still an imperfect man. And so it is weighty to consider that they had this conversation, this big hubbub in Jerusalem, and now today like Peter's going to be guilty of exactly what they just talked about. But is that not the life of a believer, like all of us have found ourselves in that situation. So I fully believe this takes place after that. And even though they had agreed, even though they agreed, like at the Council of Jerusalem, they agreed that the gospel is Christ and Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that Paul and Peter were not respectful and didn't ever take part in the customs. We know from scripture that at times they did, that they observed customs at times because they did this out of respect, that they might ultimately win those, uh, the, re the religious folks, to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20, Paul says this, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there's a couple of big things. One, when he talks about these Jews, 
He says that he desires to win them. So we know that at least a percentage of, of the Jewish folks that are being spoke of here were not believers. And maybe that wasn't universal. Maybe some of the, I have to think that some of the Jews are probably simply just struggling to let go of their heritage, even though they may trust in the gospel now. That doesn't change the fact that it can be tempting to go back to our own ways. But obviously, some of these Jews are not believers. And so Paul says, out of respect, in order to uh, be able to engage them and show love to them, he would observe their customs for the purpose of winning them to Christ. And so we have to believe, like Peter, his ministry, first and foremost, has been to be a missionary amongst the Jews, to be a missionary in the midst of these very hyper-religious people. And so I have to think that what Paul said has been Peter's demeanor even more, that Peter was called to be a missionary primarily in a place that would not be unlike the Bible Belt, where he is ministering ultimately to those who would assume themselves to have good standing before God, even though there's no relationship with Jesus, no dependence on the gospel. I think that's important to point out because you have also uh, been put in a very similar situation in many ways that to be a missionary in Joplin, Missouri is to be a missionary in the midst of many faithful believers, but also many cultural Christians who many folks who have grown up with religion, but have never really known Jesus. And that's a difficult thing to decipher. That's a difficult thing to know the difference between. And ultimately it's the reason why church planting in the Bible belt is something that God is still doing because there are, are many who find themselves in this situation. It's important to note here from this text, religious living does not necessarily equal salvation through the gospel. That when you're involved in church planning in the Bible Belt, one of the most common questions that will come up every time is why, why another church? Like, we have all these church built, especially for those who don't. The, the people who are even more perplexed often are those who don't know Christ. Like, haven't you guys already got a lot of territory? I know there are a lot of buildings. Isn't that, isn't that what, what this is? And, and ultimately, we're reminded through Scripture that that's not what this is, that, that buildings and religious living, unfortunately, according to Scripture, do not necessarily equate to gospel transformation. And this is Peter's life, and this is um, this, the very sin that the people he ministers to wrestle with. Is, we're going to see a picture of that in him in this brief moment of, of weakness. This, counter here, this encounter here, though, takes place amongst the Gentiles. Jewish ritual has become the norm for Peter, and while he's with the Gentiles, he, he gets comfortable in the grace that he received from Christ, the grace he knows to be true. And so he eats and he fellowships with the Gentiles, recognizing full well that they were gospel family. It's like Peter, okay, this is... Like, Peter has been at First Baptist Jerusalem now. He's been pretty buttoned up, okay? He's, he's got used to the customs. He leaves. He comes over to Antioch. He's with this different crowd. And all of a sudden, like, Peter starts to really kind of, like, loosen up and remember the freedom and liberation he has in Christ. And, and he gets comfortable with that. And he's ministering to these people. But then certain men from James come to Antioch. It tells us in verse 12. Now, there's some disagreement amongst commentators and theologians as to what this term certain men from James actually means. Some believe 
that these were men specifically sent to Antioch by James. We don't know why. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But some assume that there is an intent by James. Some believe that these are merely men who were known for their association with James. That they weren't necessarily sent by him, but that people just knew these were James guys. I hold to a little different view that, that many others do as well. Uh, commentators as far back as Augustine and Aquinas um, held to this view that these men weren't really, they weren't disciples of James at all, but that by saying men from James, we, that, that they're merely talking about men from Judah, since James provided over, presided over the church in Jerusalem, that these men very well, very well have been from the church of which James oversees, but their claim to have any authority, or if, it seems that they're trying to present in some way that maybe they're they're from him or, or that they have authority from him. And I just don't believe that to be true. The wording here, the way that the wording um, is, is done, men from James, it doesn't necessarily imply or, or make, um, make it absolute that they have some kind of discipleship type connection. So I, I think these are, if, if you are, uh, if, if you're part of, like, James is a, a part of a large, very large church. I mean, a, a massive church that takes up a huge, makes up a huge percentage of the city. And uh, there's definitely going to be some people in a church that size that you don't necessarily want representing you, but maybe they choose to. And I think that's the encounter that we see here. And the reason that I believe that is because their their demeanor, what what Peter interprets from them and the fear he has of them in no way would reflect the truth of the gospel-drenched preaching that James did. Like, you can't read the book of James and then have the demeanor of these men. So I think these are strict, simply men from Judah, But and, 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 and Scripture leads us to believe, by all accounts, that, that these are essentially unconverted Jews. And so these men had long held the customs and traditions that they believe gave them power over their own salvation. And men and women who believe that they have that kind of power, like even if they, they would never say it that way in their heads, but internally, like if you believe you have the power to attain your own salvation, then you'll go to any length to protect that. And that's, that's, that's one of the ways that church abuse takes place. Like if you believe that you have the, that power, You'll protect that at all costs, and you will do whatever you need to to keep anybody uh, from taking that from you or for cha from challenging that. And we don't know the specifics of that, but it's evident that even the great Peter is fearful of these men uh, based off their reputation, because when they enter uh, Antioch, Peter becomes afraid of this group. The last part of verse 12 tells us. There's no question, like Peter's a man of great faith. He's an apostle and he is a devout lover of Jesus Christ. But he is a flawed man. And he's one who's called to a lifetime of repentance, just like you and just like myself. Going in full steam, charging ahead, and then suddenly pulling back in fear... Like, that's kind of Peter's thing. That's kind of his M.O. throughout Scripture. And so we even a Peter who is far more sanctified than some of the stories where we've seen him before, there's still a little bit of that struggle in him, and it comes out here in this encounter. There's several examples of who Peter is, and I, 
I'm thankful for who Peter is because like a lot of times I feel like I, I relate to Peter in just being zealous and then being like super fearful once it, it, you know it actually things come to a head. And uh, one story in particular of Peter that I think reflects like the Peter that we see come out in this passage is a, a section of scripture from Matthew 14 verses 28 through 33 and a, uh, a passage of scripture I'm sure you're familiar with. Starting in verse 28, it says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I remember hearing this passage uh, taught a lot in like Sunday school when I was a kid. And the way it was told, like I always kind of, I feel like it was just insinuated that Peter was kind of a doofus. And that's kind of how I always saw him. Like, oh, silly Peter. He's, you know, being, you know, a goofball again. Um, but the truth is, while it's easy to criticize Peter in this text, I, I haven't taken any steps on water recently, so I would refrain from doing that, okay? Jesus tells Peter to come, and he does. And that's a model for all of us. Like, that's Christ's call to us, that there's something in Peter on that boat that when he, when he sees just even what he thinks to be Jesus, he just, Peter just wants to be with Jesus. And sometimes he just doesn't even know what to do with that or how to identify that thing in him. But this, this, this thing about how Peter was created that he had kept suppressed most of his life until approached on a fishing boat, just the more he's with Jesus, the more it comes bubbling to the top. And so when he sees this man who he's walking on the water, I'm pretty confident it's Jesus. He, he says, like, if, it, if it's you, Lord, would you, would you, could I come to you? And Jesus' response to that is always, come. And so Peter steps out of the boat. And that's the call for all of us. But when you go, when we step out and seek to follow Jesus, we're going to absolutely need him to follow where he goes. Like, to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus onto the water. And you can't do that void of Jesus. And the moment you take your eyes off him, you sink. You begin to sink, and the things that were, the things that used to enslave you, come calling back for you. But it's important in that time and in that moment to remember and not forget that he loves you. And because you're his, he will, just like he grabbed hold of Peter and he pulled him back, he does that for us time and time again. And in that moment, there's a, a picture of the very salvation that Peter received, that Peter, who was drowning in an ocean of death, was plucked out by the strong arm of Jesus. Peter, making application to where he's at now, Peter followed Christ when he showed love to his Gentile family. Like, even imagining Peter in that room, like, it takes you. It makes you remember who Christ was. That Christ sat in rooms with people who were far more culturally disgraced than the Gentiles. Jesus ate good food and drank wine with with the worst of people. And and so Peter entering into that space and being with the Gentiles, he's following Jesus. He's doing what he saw Jesus do, and he's finding joy in that. But religion 
came in just like the storm. Peter's doing what Jesus has called him to do, and he hears the wind, just like he did on the ocean. But the wind isn't an actual storm this time. It's religion and custom that that comes in and, and is placed in a higher seat, and his fear wells up in him just like the storm. And again, he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he sinks for, for a moment. He sinks back in to who he was. This is how it works for all of us. Jesus calls all who are his to come, to get out of the safety of the boat. Like, you can't, you can't emphasize how safe a boat is on the lake. Okay, like, boat you live, outside the boat you die. Like, that's pretty bold distinction, especially in the midst of this storm. So Jesus, like Jesus calls us out of that which keeps us safe, that which keeps us in control. The boat, we, we, we feel some measure of control in the boat. And Jesus calls us out of that. But he's very clear, and scripture's very clear, that as we get out, we're only going to follow him by his power. Like we're going to be fully dependent on him. And there are going to be times where we take our eyes off. And when that happens, we're going to feel the weight. We're going to, we're going to begin to sink into that sin of who we were. But we, know, we move forward knowing that he's there. Knowing that he plucks us out when that comes. Knowing that his strong arm that rescued us to begin with is going to be there again. And that's what, what Alex was saying last week. Like that's what scripture last week, like Paul reminds them, you didn't pull yourself out of the ocean. Why do you think you're going to do it by yourself now? And that's where Peter finds himself today, his sinking back in. His fear causes him to draw back and separate himself from the Gentile Christians. Make no mistake, Peter knew better. Peter knew better. Peter had been specifically addressed by God about this. Peter has a vision in the book of Acts where God gives him this dream and makes it very clear that the unclean foods and the things that used to, to, to take part, like that, that's no longer has, is, is connected to the gospel. And in Acts 10, we see this situation where Peter is called for by a man named Cornelius. And, and this really lovely story, I'll just give you a snippet. In verse 25 through 28, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, Peter says this to these people of another place, of another nation. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So like, this is pretty deep in Peter. Peter knows what's true. But it's still a struggle to walk in that. And that never, we don't ever come to a place in this life where we're no longer dependent on Jesus to walk faithfully in this life. Like, you don't ever arrive at that. Not this side of heaven. Scripture promises us that. Like, one day we'll stand before Jesus and we'll be made new and glorification will happen and, and we'll be in that place. But as long as you're on this earth, you need him. No matter how much you know, no matter how many times he's told you. And so what happens is Peter, who knew better, out of fear, he pulls back and pretends he's not with them. And the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas, who was Paul's partner, withdrew and they joined the hypocrisy. We see in verse 13. 
the worst thing, and maybe the most weighty thing about this, this scene, isn't, isn't just Peter's sin, but it's how Peter's sin led others to follow suit. This is, a, this is, this is weighty and dangerous, especially for anyone who leads. Like, I don't care if, if you're a pastor or if you're leading Little Sprouts or if you're whatever, whatever situation you're in. Like, if God has, has put you in a position of leading people, this is the danger. This is the weightiness that comes in that. And that when Peter sins, in that moment, we see all these other believers starting to follow suit. And even Barnabas, like Barnabas has been mentored, discipled by Paul. Barnabas loves everybody, and Barnabas quickly pulls back and starts doing the same thing. I mean, Barnabas surely looked up to Peter, and he's, you know, he's been, for the last three years, he's been reading all of Peter's blogs on the Gospel Coalition. So, like, if Peter's doing this, then obviously he needs to, too, because Peter's somebody. So Barnabas even pulls back. A a famous quote uh, that I believe is a Puritan quote says, when there is a midst in the pulpit... There is a fog in the pew. And that that's really true at all levels of leadership. This is why the church has to take sin so seriously. When the Christian individually and the church corporately fail to confront sin and take it seriously, as overwhelmingly tempting as that might be, it brings confusion to the witness of the gospel. And Paul tells us it makes a mockery of Christ's call to repentance. The final words of Jesus recorded in Scripture were spoken to the local churches at the end of the first century, and his warning to the church in Ephesus was surely a warning to all the churches that would come after. He basically warns the church in relation Revelation 2.5 by saying, like, the churches have become unhealthy because sin is taking place and it's not being dealt with. And he basically says, repent or the light will be removed. Jesus warns the churches, you repent and take sin seriously, or I'm going to take your lampstand away. And all too often, like, man, like, that's weighty to enter into, and so we don't want to. But like this situation here, what's happening in the midst of those who look to Peter is the very reason why Paul demands the churches to, to take sin and to care, approach sin with the weight in which it is, is due. And so therefore, on that note, Peter stood condemned. That is, the great Peter the Apostle stood there in that room condemned, meaning he was guilty of wrong. John Stott's commentary says this about the phrase back in verse 12, he was eating with the Gentiles. The imperfect tense of the verb shows that this had been his regular practice. He had been, for a time, eating with the Gentiles. You could interpret that as he was in the habit of eating his meals with the Gentiles. Yet now, all of a sudden, Peter refused to eat with Gentile believers. Like these are brothers and sisters in Christ, and he turns his back on them. A Jew only refused to eat with Gentiles in obedience to Jewish rituals. And Peter had stopped keeping these Jewish rituals for himself, but he now acted as if he did keep them. And because of such, he implied to the Gentile believers that they must do the same, even though he himself did not. Peter stands guilty here in this text of living outside the gospel. 
The text actually says in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul's conduct, like it wasn't just that he made a mistake, but it's the way that he was living preached a gospel opposite of that which was true. His life in that moment and the life of those who followed him preached a false gospel of Jesus plus, in this case, tradition. So, like, it's not just that Jesus hurt the feelings of the Gentiles, but these young Gentile believers who look to Peter, now all of a sudden they're getting mixed signals about what the gospel is. If Peter won't eat with us because we're Gentiles, then then I guess it really is Jesus plus these rituals, because Peter seems to be displaying such. His life, his sin, his lack of living in line with the gospel in that moment literally preached a false truth in the way that he lived. And Paul, Paul would have none of that because Paul had been so radically changed and knew such the depth of sin and the destruction of sin, having been the worst of men himself, that, that he, will not, he, he won't tolerate it for a second. He addresses it there in the midst of all who are in that place. Paul rebuke, rebukes him to his face in verse 11. Verse 14, she gives us Paul's assessment of the situation and ultimately tells us the content of his rebuke. This behavior was out of sync with the gospel and inconsistent with the life commitments that Peter himself had made. Verse 14 says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? As God's people, we have no need to hide sin. Not if we believe that Christ died to atone for it. And in the same vein, the church has no need to be slow in speaking truth. Paul has no desire to humiliate his brother. Yet we see here in this text that Paul says, when I saw it, when Peter crossed that line and Paul saw it, he jumps. Okay, Paul, and he, he doesn't do that. Like he, he loves Peter. Peter's a brother. He has no desire to humiliate his brother, but in love he speaks truth to him to stop sin in its tracks. Because in that moment, Peter was guilty. This was no longer theoretical. This wasn't, you know, this, this wasn't theoretical. It was happening before Paul's eyes. He's witnessed this, and he boldly in love speaks truth. Part of being a family is being willing to have these kind of conversations. That's what true community looks like. We all stand in Peter's position at some point. And when that day comes, I pray that you have put people in the midst of your community, that you've surrounded yourself with people, that when we are in Peter's shoes, that can can speak that to us in love, as took place here by Paul. Paul tells Peter in 14 that if he is living like a Gentile, knowing his righteousness is in Christ alone, Yet by his behavior, he's leading the Gentiles to believe they must live like Jews. Then his life is not reflecting the truth of the gospel in that moment. As we kind of seek to summarize, uh, just kind of overview like what's taking place here. In this passage, Peter was primarily ministering to the Gentiles. Yet his primary call had been and would continue to some degree to be ministering to the Jews. And this made it 
all the more critical that Peter's life be synced up with his message. And I believe that we don't know why exactly why he came to Antioch, but I believe that God is teaching him something about that even in this moment as he enters back into a place where that would not be the norm. There's no doubt that Peter loved Jesus and ultimately devoted his life to him, even ultimately giving his life in the name of Jesus. Yet in this moment, his, sin reflect, his life reflected the sin of those whom he had been primarily called to minister to. Like Peter in, his, in this scene, the Jews' religion was primarily motivated by fear. They feared failing and keeping the law. The law was their means of salvation, and they had convinced themselves they had it under control. The law was kind of like their boat on the sea. Like, it was pretty shaky, it took on water, but they felt like while they were on it, they had some level of control. And the, the, these Gentiles, like, were those who were just seeking to walk on the water, following after Jesus. This scene in Antioch, I want to just make some application, because I, I think, and I, I've been convicted this week, that this scene in Antioch has a lot in common with the place where we've been called to be missionaries here. One of the, the great lies of the enemy is that religion equals Christ followers. We convince ourselves that missionaries are needed in places where liberalism and secularism run rampant. That like Those are the places we need to send Christians. Those are the places that need church plants. Those are the places where we need people to be missionaries. But we fail to see the need for gospel transformation in the backyard of the Bible Belt. And Jesus warns us of this in a Scary, but very uh, honest scripture in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus warns here in this text, like when Jesus says, I never knew you, obviously Jesus knew them. He, he was able to, to identify that there were workers of lawlessness. So obviously he knows about them. But what we know in scripture is that there's knowing and then there's knowing the way that Christ uses it, that God knows all people and knows the depths of all people. But when scripture says, no, God knows us, he, he's talking about intimately as those who are his, okay? Like there's a, there's a kind of knowing and, and, and the, guard, the first time we see this phrase used is in the garden when it says that Adam and Eve knew each other and became one flesh, okay? That's obviously a different kind of knowing than me knowing what your favorite kind of sports team is. And so when scripture uses the term to be known by God, it's talking about salvation. It's talking about this deep knowledge that comes from walking with him and being his. And Jesus says to these, these folks, I didn't know you. Depart from me. In this sobering text, Jesus warns that many people will give their lives to religion without any personal relationship with Jesus. In the Bible, outside of Satan himself, who is the most, the most common adversary of Christ and Christ's people? Is it the, the unrepentant Gentiles? Is it the pagans? Usually not. It's typically those uh, who claim to be people of God, yet don't know him at all. 
and have nothing to do with Jesus. Over and over again, like there's this common theme in Scripture that those are, those are who are opposed primarily to the gospel. The folks in this text that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7, obviously they knew religion well, but they didn't know the Redeemer. They did a lot of great things, but they didn't do them in the name of Jesus. Recently, uh, a, a, a new book came out that uh, I, I, I bought as I was preparing for this sermon uh, and a couple others uh, down the road. Um, but it, it was written by a man named Dean and Sarah, who is a pastor of a church in Tallahassee and who I, I got to sit in a class with it for the church uh, last year. And uh, this book is called uh, The Unsaved Christian. And in this book, uh, there's a place where he references this text. And he offers a modern-day version of the did we not please. He says this. Did we not say grace before dinner? Did we not vote our values? Did we not go to church service? Did we not believe in God? Did we not own Bibles? Did we not want America to return to its Christian roots? Like, none of those things obviously are, are bad, okay? And the things that they cried, did we not, in Matthew, like, those aren't bad things. Like, those, and those are good things for the most part. Nor is your job bad, nor is your family bad, but any of those things, anything that, that we do or give ourselves to that is not out of the love for Jesus that is not motivated and, and we're not led to first and foremost by our love for Jesus be, becomes an idol or something that stands in the way of us and him. Like, we, Jesus wasn't ever meant to be just kind of this side thing that we do on Sundays and Wednesdays. And that's all too common in the place that we live. And we, like, it's not just a matter of preference or personal philosophy. Scripture warns us here, like, you can't do that. It's all or nothing. Jesus requires death to self in all of us. And Paul here in just a minute is going to remind Peter of that in our closing. The cries of these people pleading in this text all begin with, didn't we? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? But the cry of the Christian must always be, didn't he? Didn't he? It's nothing that you bring to the table or that you've done is sufficient. Didn't we will never will not do on that day. There's nothing you can tack on to the end of didn't we that is sufficient to pay for your sin. But didn't he? Didn't he carry the weight of it? Didn't he go to the cross and atone for all that was broken and all of my failings? And on that day, didn't he will be the only cry that I have? And it's the only cry you have today. I want to close with this. Paul's response to his brother and I ended up, I didn't bring, I didn't build this text in to the sermon because I just kind of felt like it was powerful just as it is not needing a whole lot of commentary. And so um, Paul's response to his brother, Peter, he, he calls him out and his response to him is to preach the gospel to him and that all who are in that room. And honestly, as a gospel family, that's pretty much what we have all the time. We preach the gospel to one another, reminding one another of who we are and who he is. And so in verses 15 through 21, I am going to read Paul's gospel declaration to Peter and those in that room, and then we'll talk about it for just a moment. He says this, beginning in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, 
and we're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul reminds Peter, like, this life's no longer about us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, he's telling Peter, like, I I get where you're at. Like, we were born Jews, but we've been, our eyes have been opened to the truth. We know that we're no longer saved by those things. It's no longer Christ that lives in us. It's no longer. It now is only Christ who lives in us. And he says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That from that that day forward, for the Christian, the living here in the flesh is necessary, but we no longer live for ourselves. Like we, the life we now live in the flesh, we live through faith in the Son of God, that it's now Christ who lives in us. And we step out of the boat knowing that Christ is, is with us and leads us and points us where he would have us to go and that we're dependent on him in that because our life is now meant to glorify him in all things. And I do not nullify the grace of God. Like, he he literally tells Peter, like, when your life is being lived as if your salvation is dependent on you, as if you're sufficient in yourself, you're literally living a life that nullifies the grace of God. Because if you have that kind of power, and if you live in such a way that reflects that, then you're essentially living as if Christ died for no purpose. You make a mockery of the cross of Christ. That's bold truth to say to Peter the Apostle, but Paul does it because in that moment, that's what Peter needed. And by all accounts, Peter appears to accept that, knowing that to be true. When you stand before Jesus, Christian, if all you have is a list of religious works, then you stand before Jesus with nothing. If you live your life, if your identity is built on the job that you do, the, the hobbies that you like, the, the, the dreams that you have, like if your life is built on all these didn't we statements, then you live your life void right now with nothing. I pray instead that when you stand before the king, that when you stand before the Father one day, when you stand before him and he asks why you should enter the kingdom of heaven, in the book of Revelation, John gives us this, John sees this vision of this amazing, just undescribable picture of Jesus in heaven, that Jesus is is no longer the, the, the dirty, you know, carpenter, 
But he, he, he describes Jesus as this warrior on this great white horse. And he's got this tattoo across his thigh. And he's just this he's Jesus in his, in his full glory. And, and John can barely even get out the words trying to describe this. My prayer for you and for your neighbor and for those in those, this community who don't know Jesus, even if they think they do, is that when they go to heaven, when they stand at, 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 the, at the gate, the we, all we can do is point to the guy on the white horse. Like, that's all we have. The answer to that question is, I have nothing. Didn't I nothing? But I'm with him. Like, but he did. He did. And that's it. And that's all we have. And Paul, uh, even the great Peter, had to be reminded of that. How much more do we have to be reminded of that each and every day? That that's all we have. And that's all we have this morning. And, uh... That's all that we need. And that's all that the, the people who live on the street where God has placed you, that's all they need. He's enough. He's sufficient. Would we rest in that as his people? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are here today because of what you've done. We have nothing to offer. But we've been, we've, we've been made worthy of being in this place through your son. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you that you have borne the weight of, uh, of my sin and my shortcomings, that I am often unfaithful, that I often... Uh, pull back in fear. Thank you that you have atoned for that, that you call me a son. I'm not worthy of sonship, but I, I pray that my life would be a reflection of being thankful for it. Lord, would that be true of each of us? Lord, would we not fear sin, but would it just, would it just thrust us even more into you, Lord? Lord, would we lean into you ah, as a church just relentlessly? You're all we have. Lord, I pray uh, by the power of the Spirit that, uh, that it, it would no longer be us who live in the flesh, but it would be you living in us. I pray that our lives would reflect that. I pray that we would put down things that keep us from you, even if that's scary and costly. I pray that the places that you've put us, that we would operate in those places, Lord, that we would serve in those places out of our identity in you and not out of a desire for anything else. Lord, remove worldly aspirations from our hearts and give us kingdom aspirations. Lord, would you do that? As a church and as individuals, would you do that? Would you replace all of our worldly aspirations with kingdom aspirations? Lord, we know in the kingdom... Moss and rust won't destroy. Lord, would we be a people who invest our lives in eternal things? And even now saying that, I, I know that we're not able to do that without you. So, Holy Spirit, would you make that so in us? Would you, would you make that so in us? I love you. I pray these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.